listening to Rights and Brands podcast. This is our sixth episode and today I have with me author Tuwa Harno, who is celebrating today the publication of her third novel, Kylman Sodan Tytär in Finnish, or Cold War Affairs, as we call it in English. And I'm her literary agent, Lena Stinakakko. Welcome, Tuwa, and congratulations on this big day. Thank you, it's nice to be here. Cold War Affairs is essentially a story about Cold War politics, um, shady affairs and and espionage. It's partly set in Helsinki during the 1980s, and these parts are narrated by a CIA agent, Edward, who leads a double life here in Finland um, as an American businessman under the name Michael Albright and as a father of a small family. The other parts of the novel take place in 2017 and they are narrated both by the spy's daughter, Mari, who finally finds out the truth about her father and by Edward himself, who's still working for the CIA uh, in the US. What makes this story super interesting is the fact that the web of lies in the Cold War era tied together with shady trays done by maybe the only Finnish corporation known worldwide called Nokia. Instead of hallmarking individual freedom, mobile phones symbolize here the beginning of surveillance capitalism in this story. Before we go into more detail about this, Um, and the shady trades Nokia supposedly did. Um, can you tell us first how this project began? Uh, yes, um, it was already back in 2014. I was uh, talking to a movie producer, a friend of mine, and he was saying that, have I noticed that there's um, there's not a lot of Cold War era movies done in Finland? even though the Cold War years were this the time when, especially Helsinki, but the whole of Finland was this hotspot between the Western world and the Eastern world. And there were a lot of spies, both from the Soviet side, from the US, and then from especially Eastern Germany. And uh, somehow that... Uh, enticed me of thinking that I would like to write about that time. And I started writing a movie script about this American agent, Edward, who is um, in Helsinki during the Cold War years. And then at some point I realized that many of the things I was writing for the movie were actually these sort of philosophical philosophical questions about why does somebody become a spy and how does that life affect you? And they were too big to be dealt with in the tight movie script format. So then it became a novel, which we have here today. (laughs) (laughs) So it was quite a long, long uh, process. And also, I I find it really interesting to think that when we were children, we were both born in the 1980s, that Finland was, there were were plenty of spies going around. in our normal everyday life, and, and this is a subject that's not so much talked about. Um. No, not at all. And that was another thing which really um, uh, struck a bell with me. It was like this, the whole idea of spying. It's this, like you said, a shady world, and it's something you don't talk about, and it's something that happens be- 
behind the like public eye. And it's really at odds with what, what is the image of Finland, because the image of Finland is this really honest and pure and equal and almost like simple to a fault. <laughs> like this is the national story of what we are. And then I was like, but if this has been a playground for spies, why don't we talk about it? Why is it? Why are we still so silent about it? What's with this? Um, uh, or everything that relates to the spy world. How could we have that as part of our identity as well? Yeah, that's a good question. We'll actually talk a little bit more about Finland's identity um, a little bit later. But I would want to first dive into the plot. Um, to describe the plot in short, um, in the center of it, there is a deceivingly clever double scheme where the frontmen of Nokia at that time are playing both the Soviets and the Americans. Um, and in short, it goes like this. Um, in order to get financing for his big dream, which is developing mobile phones, the CEO of Nokia um, sells nationwide digital phone centers to the Soviet Union with the reluctant acceptance of the West. This is sort of the official deal, but there is a secret part to, to this deal, um, the part that the Soviets are ready to pay a lot of money for. And this is Nokia promising to create for the Soviets um, satellite technology, which would enable remote control of, for example, missiles. This would be technology that would have totally changed the game of the Cold War. So Nokia's plan was to get this money from the Soviets and then turn to the Americans and double sell the same technology to them and actually deliver it to America in the end. So this is kind of the core plot in your novel. All this sounds just like the unimaginable schemes that actually did happen during the Cold War decades. So I must ask, ask first, what, what is actually based on, on true events here and when do we go to imagination? Um, what is true is that Nokia did sell digital phone centers to the Soviet Union and it was with this reluctant acceptance from the West because there was this um, uh, general understanding that this sort of high technology should not be sold to the Soviet Union. And especially the U.S. Uh, parts of this deal were really monitoring that that people or that other countries obey this, even though Finland was not officially, they hadn't signed the end on the treaty that uh, said that you cannot sell this sort of technology to the Soviets. But we would still kind of go and ask for unofficial permission? Or? Yes, yes, because uh, otherwise... Uh, the U.S. could just lock down their markets and say that, okay, if you're not going to play by our rules, you can't sell to our markets. Yeah. So, um, um, but then where the fiction is, is that the, it's a part of this, um, the system, the, the hidden uh, scheme of the, of the system that would remote control missiles. Well, well, that's fiction. <laughs> but... Um, what is true is that uh, Nokia did become the biggest mobile phone uh, company during uh, right after a big uh, recession in Finland. 
So that had always like um, seemed to me this sort of how did it happen? <laughs> it triggered your imagination yes. to to come up with a a really clever double scheme. Yeah, yeah. And then the things they coincide like in time because uh, in the beginning of the 1990s there's the first Gulf War, which was like the first this sort of it's called the computer game game war because it was this remote controlled war so st- that sort of technology must have been uh, developed during those last uh, years of the 1980s but it, it's just my imagination that it was developed here <laughs> um, something that I noticed is that yes you name Nokia in in the book but the CIA agent your are the main character, Edward slash Michael, um, he never uses the name Nokia, not even the parts where he's narrating uh, the story 30 years later in 2017. Instead, he constantly uses a code name, Onyx, for the company. Why is this? Uh, well, it's a, hmm, it comes from being a CIA agent that you use code names, and there's, it's just... A matter of habit, and then especially with uh, Onyx, uh, it comes to mean something so um, a tremendous loss for Edward. So it, there's something ominous about using the real name as well. He really doesn't want to. So you speculate really deliciously on the basis of Nokia's worldwide success, how it could have been built, the whole mobile phone um, technology. And then you speculate also about Finland or, or talk about Finland's position in, in the Cold War um, and reveal mysteries or, or shady affairs. Um, let's go back to the, to the image of Finland or our position during the Cold War. So we were considered neutral, not part of the Western bloc, but also not identifying with the East and rather trying to balance between the two for for historic and both also ge- geographical reasons. Um, and like you already mentioned, Finland is often portrayed as a small and innocent country between the giants. But in your book, and according to this scheme um, that's central in the plot, I think we're actually the sly ones. Do you agree? <laughs> Oh, well, yes. Um, there's um, there's a certain um, there's certain gains to be made by by playing dumb. <laughs> so if you if you have this image of being really simple and um, honest, uh, people think that you're no sort of threat. I think um, women have played this card <laughs> quite well, <laughs> quite well <laughs> so, uh, throughout history. Um, to like keep be- befriending everyone and then doing your own thing in the background <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And um, and I I'm not saying that there's something um, specific- specifically wrong with that. I'm just saying that it's not at all a part of how Finland. It, it, what's the like the national story of the Finnish mm-hmm. identity, and. Um, it just doesn't uh, sit right with me to have such a simplistic view of anyone <laughs> that to be like this honest to a fault type of uh, uh, that, that that would be the whole truth about 
Finland. Um, but I and I think also that well in the story there's the CEO of Nokia is really uh, adamant about his dream about building his mobile phone empire and this sort of dramatic need to fulfill dreams is another thing that we don't really associate with Finnish people because we are so modest <laughs> and it's like um, it's another thing I would wanted to ask but we have been making these really really ambitious things here like gender equality and free schooling like up until university mm. we are a really uh, ambitious people yeah <laughs> and, and and it's also it's never like talked about in our um the way we talk about uh, finnish like national identity so i wanted to like have more shades to that mm. story and it would be quite easy to sort of interpret this playing dumb um or or trying to be neutral trying to please everyone as just a sort of strategy for survival but it as you just said it's it's actually much more than that yes and and then there's um i've noticed that there's uh, some sort of a a, a bit of a hmm, these uh, people who were like who lived through the war and who adapted this sort of way of dealing with the big um, our eastern neighbor and then the western world was this sort of smiling and being compliant to everyone and then they are like uh, now they're defensive about this tactic and saying that the new generation doesn't understand this that the new generation wants to be this sort of really open and transparent and adamant about human rights issues and everything when it wasn't an actual possibility during uh, the years or decades after the war that Finland just couldn't go around saying that, oh, but Soviet Union is doing this and this and this and this, and we are blaming them. And it just, and that it's naive for our generation now to ask for that. And I'm not, um, I, what I want to put into the conversation is that I'm not asking for, uh, like, saying that what they did was wrong. It Probably it was the only tactic and only way to play the game then, but it doesn't mean that we have to hush about it now. And um, there's this uh, saying that um, if the truth is covered by silence, then the silence becomes a lie. So it's not like we can just um, say that, okay, that was the way of the world then, and now we can just move on and be different. We really need to address those issues and un- and answer the questions of what it meant for Finland to be playing that sort of double game all the time. Because it does affect the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. If you can never really say what you really think, and if everybody who is controlling the country is playing a double game, well, the atmosphere is uh, its not, how would I say, honest and yeah. <laughs> relaxed for anyone. No, no. and And I feel like... There's there's a lot of stories there that could be told. Yes. And this is one of them. Yeah. Um, it's fun to see in your novel how you portray um, Helsinki as sort of a provincial little town in the 1980s and, and use even some Finnish cliches, I'd say. And, but those were actually true, and, and some of them are still true. Um, 
for example, that in, in exotic Finland uh, deals, big deals were, were negotiated and, and made in saunas or at snowed-in cottages. Um, was this intentional? Well, yes, because uh, the, the culture of making business deals in a sauna is something that it's so... Um, known in Finland it's somehow what we make deals and it was also a way to explain why we were in such good terms with the Soviets was like because the Soviets also like to go to the sauna and Finnish people like to go to the sauna <laughs> and that's why we're making all these great business deals and uh, I wanted like even if for Finnish readers it might read as like oh but we know this this is nothing new to us it's just uh, it's something that I want to point out that it really is something in the world scale it's really weird and that's why I wanted uh, Edward to like confront it because especially for him because he's um, really self-conscious about himself the thought of going naked to a sauna with complete strangers and, and business partners and business partners and and then he, he's he's living this double life at the, but then he's stark naked so it's so it, yeah. it's difficult <laughs> And uh, and grasping those the, that um, reality of that, I think it was just too delicious to not to not to have the sauna scene, um, but also um, like on, on a more general note, the thought of these sauna deals is something that Finland actually has to come to terms with now. I think nowadays it would be a bit, bit frowned upon because mm. there's a um, there it's this sort of. It's a male thing to go to the sauna, exactly. and if you have women making deals, then the women are left out. Yeah. So, so that is kind of in the past. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think we're moving past it, or then we're going to gender-neutral saunas, and I don't know what that would look like then. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cold War affairs is definitely a plot driven story um, a book that both nods to Cold War thrillers and also regenerates the genre at the same time was this your aim? well yes because um, my questions about spies are not the sort of thriller thriller driven questions about will he or she make it out alive Or will the bomb explode? <laughs> I was more interested in how does the life uh, as an agent affect uh, the agent, him or herself, and then um, and their loved ones. Because real life spies, they do have spouses and they do have children, and that's the thing we rarely see on screen. James Bond isn't a father, but real life agents also are parents. So I wanted to ask that question that how it, would it feel to have that in a parent-child relationship to never really know who your uh, parent is and what are they doing for a living or then for with, with a spouse because honesty openness and uh, trust are that's what make a healthy relationship and they are just those things that you cannot have <laughs> if, if you're a spy living a double life You cannot be honest and open and trusting with anyone. So what's the sort of relationships does that forge, and especially in a family? What do you think um, are 
sort of the characteristics of Michael slash Edward's character that make him a good spy? Um, well, first of all, he, he has the motivation for it. He believes he's on the right side of uh, history. He's, he's on the Western side with freedom and the right to privacy and the right to live the sort of liberal free life. When he goes uh, to recruit himself to CIA, he really thinks he's on the right side of history in that way. So it helps to, to be motivated. Mm -hmm. And um, But then with Edward, um, his preoccupation with um, looking at other people stems from the fact that he really isn't at ease with himself. He has these uh, questions about himself and his own identity that he can't answer. So he really wants to concentrate on other people, to look how other people are acting and how they how they are. So that makes him a good spy as well because he's the one who's looking at other people and not preoccupied with himself. And adapting to their um, sort of clues how to behave and what yes. to do. And then concerning the double life, Edward is happy to be whatever is asked from him because he, he isn't happy to be himself. He doesn't want to be himself. He wants to be something else, something that can be of use to to the ideals he has given his life to. So, so that makes him a good spy. But towards the end, uh, when he loses uh, part of his like trust in that he's on the right side, uh, he, he becomes uh, less of a good spy. He becomes a bit sentimental. <laughs> it's it's interesting to to hear. Um, about these questions of, of identity and uh, what it really means for a human being or a single individual to be a spy, what that life is, is like. I think those are the questions that um, have been dealt with in, in some of the very popular TV shows that we've been watching, like Homeland or the French one, Le Bureau, where you get to know the spy's life intimately and then you get to know also the sort of the more of a plot-driven big stories, the schemes and, 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 and the action part of it. So combining these two, I think it's a very um, good way to, to re-mold uh, the, the genre of, of sort of the Cold War thrillers and what, what it really means for, for the individuals. And then one very important individual, the other narrator um, in, in your book is Mari, um, Edward's daughter, um, who is, when she's narrating in 2017, she's in her mid-30s and she's actually lost her husband recently. He died in an accident and she has an eight-year-old daughter. Her mother is suffering from brain damage. There's quite a lot of, of things going on in, in Mari's life. And then in the middle of all this, um, she finds out that the, her father was not the American businessman she always thought he was. Um, and she also thinks that he's dead. And then at some point she realizes, no, he's actually still alive. So um, these experiences, of course, affect Mari's uh, view of her herself. And um, how do you, how would you describe Mari's character? How is she sort of molded by the absent father 
and then how do these revelations about who her father really is and what really happened, how do they um, form the character? Well, um, for me, um, Mari is this, um, at least in the beginning, she's, she's really frozen as a character. Like there's, um, she, she comes to all situations with, uh, with this sort of um, um, need not to be sentimental at all. She's just like surviving life and life has been horrible for her and she's just, uh, but she's, um, um, she has this uh, view of herself that she is a survivor and she's, she's not weak and then she's gonna make it out of anything and she, um, what she doesn't realize is that this survivor mode is actually making her really um, cold and uh, also brittle. So she's not that strong as she thinks because she's not really flexible in her, in her mind. And she has this one story about her about her father, and it's the story about this American businessman who uh, Mari's mother met, fell in love, and they had a family. And then uh, the father left because of another woman. And this is uh, something that Mari has carried with her uh, till until now. That her view of men and of love is that people will leave you and uh, it's not something to be trusted. Um, and what happens to Mari in the story is that she has this resentment to her father and the fact that the father left them. Uh, as, as the Chin actually realizes that this story is wrong. It's not how it went. And there's a whole different story for why she was uh, to be why she had to live without a father and it changes everything for her and she actually realizes that she has been the one who has been cold and resentful and who has left people behind and um even though this might sound really dire i think there's a real uh, message of hope with Mari's character is because she has lost her husband uh, and there was a lot of unresolved issues with her husband when he died, and she can't solve those issues with him anymore. But now that she meets up with her father, and the father, it, it, he's still alive, there's hope. They can still resolve things. At, and that's something I wanted to have in this uh, story for Maurice, that as long as people are alive and they can meet, there's, still, there's ways to fix things. When we look sort of on the surface really quickly, uh, one could think that Cold War Affairs is quite different from your, your earlier two novels. So this is your third novel. And the two other stories were more about coming of age or about family. But now we've learned that Cold War, Cold War Affairs is very much about family. Um, and then again, if we think about your second novel, Burnt Land, um, the plot was thickening towards the end in that one, so it was working like a like a page turning thriller. So it's not um, you can write several genres maybe at the same time. Um, well, yeah, it was like <laughs> um, I think all of uh, anything. Uh, one writes just not just me it's like it the story takes the form that it it needs 
and uh, I wanted to write a novel about being a spy and it, it's like uh, it's not a thriller as such but when we're dealing with the spy world we're dealing with the things that have that sort of thriller quality you just can't escape them you're always there is the danger you can't escape the danger yeah. so so like you said in the beginning this story started with an idea for a film and now invo- evolved into a novel but um, you're still working on the film manuscript is that right and how are the plans going forward there uh, yes I'm still I'm actually currently working on the movie script and um, we are well the plan is if everything goes to plan it uh, to be filming 2022 so in about two years but yeah <laughs> and is that going to be an adaptation of the novel or is that going to be somewhat different what happens in the film well at least now uh, I think it's going to be somewhat different like uh, there's going to be Mari and there's going to be Edward the main the main character is going to be the same but uh, since the book is all there's almost the whole life of Edward from when he was a small boy until he's an old man the movie will be a lot more tightly uh, on Marie's point of view um, of the journey she makes on finding out the truth about her father and then um, herself and her family um, we've kind of touched this subject shortly already but um, to sort of end our discussion here I would like to ask why do you think we're so fascinated by spy stories and about the Cold War era something that ended 30 years ago and and it seems like there are new stories to tell about spies and, and espionage and the Cold War well I think there's a um, there's a new generation of people taking on these stories. We're not the ones who lived through them, so maybe it's easier for us to tackle with them. And um, enough time has passed, so it doesn't feel like it's too dangerous to talk about it. <laughs> I guess that's part of the um, thing why they're now so popular. But I think the fascination with uh, spy stories as, like, because that has been around for decades, it's this thought of having these people who get to live more than one life, who get to live um, different lives and different identities. And I guess now in this era where we are really fixated on identity and who we are, the thought of somebody being able to try out different ones, it's something that gets our attention. (laughs) Well, thank you, Dula, for talking to us today. Thank you. And we hope that Cold War Affairs will reach a wide audience, of course, here in Finland, but that it will also cross borders, as there are so many things in the story that uh, readers about, around the world would would get hooked, in, hooked on. Um, And maybe it is indeed time to bring a new angle to the traditional image of us Finns and Finland as silent and and innocent and and, uh, neutral. Well, thank you all for listening.